Welcome to a Heritage Christian Centre podcast. For more information, visit www.heritagecc.com.au. We hope this message blesses your life. Tonight, I want to talk to you about your name and the word radiance and what that has to do with in terms of relationship and what that looks like in terms of how we walk with God. Because certain things hold us back from a walk with God. And largely it's not character. Largely it's not intent. Largely it's not motive. It's mostly imagery. Because words matter less than how we picture those words functioning. And so if you're here tonight and you've been sort of, you wouldn't tell anybody this, and nor would you really mean it. You just don't really know how to put words around it. But the idea is, is I'm really hesitant to push in and have anything deeper with God than what I already have. And if somebody says, why? And you're like, I don't really know why. So I'm gonna, I'm, first I'm going to tell you why. And then I'm going to deconstruct that. And then I'm going to reconstruct it with something more beautiful. Likely along the way, no one intended to do this, but likely along the way, you picked up not the wrong words, but you picked up the wrong images for how those words work. So one of the things that set Christianity apart is in Romans chapter five, it says, God showed us that he loved us and that while we were hostile to God, God died for us. And in other words, the idea is, is that in Christianity, the thing that sets it apart is God makes the first move. And then he humbly consents to whether we consent back. I'm going to use that word a little bit tonight because it's a buzzword in today's culture. And the word is consent. That God is love, and love at its very nature is consensual, not coercive. And so the idea is, is that the God revealed in Jesus makes the first move and shows us and consents in love, and then is humble enough to wait for mutual consent. That's not how any other God in the world worked in Jesus' day. Every other God made you make the first move. You go to their temple, their moment, their time, in their posture, do their ritual, and pay their offering, and then maybe their God might respond to your first move, not the God revealed in Christ. The God revealed in Christ always makes the first move and then lovingly consents to your mutual consent. Now, there's some, you might be thinking, well, that's beautiful. How do you mess that up? Well, here's how you mess that up. You use words that are true, but they create untrue images. So there's a way to say true things, but the, but the picture it creates is an untrue thing. Let me, let me give you an example, okay? And you will hear this again at some point over the weekend, and I do not want you booing me because you've already heard it, all right? But this is a, this is a good example, okay? I'm, I'm fixing to say something true, but it's going to create an untrue picture, okay? I'm, I'm just warning you up front. What I'm saying is true, but the picture in your head will be not true, all right? That way I'm not using any trickery. I'm telling you up front, I'm going to say something true, And the picture in your head will not be true. Here it is, ready? Jesus is your judge, right? True. Here's the problem with that. If I was to poll the people in the room and I said, what picture do you have, right? So I say, Jesus is the judge. What is your picture? Can we all, I've already, I've done this to a thousand different people and I already know what everybody's answer would be is if I said, what's your picture? And we're not asking you because I would be putting you on the spot in front of hundreds of people. Here, here's what we're not gonna do, right? And say, what's your picture? Everybody would have some sort of picture of a judicial officer, some, a judge, so, uh, an officer of the court. And then we extrapolate those pictures and we, we paint pictures of holy heavenly courtrooms, a courtroom that is um, administrated by an all-powerful being who is going to declare you guilty or not guilty. And oftentimes, the gospel is presented this way, that although you deserve guilty, God's going to declare you not guilty because when Jesus is your judge and he took the beating for you, right, you're going to be declared not guilty. Now, here's the problem with that image, right? The word I said is true. Jesus is your judge. 
But in Hebrew, the word for judge is not a judicial officer. It's someone anointed by God to set you free from what's finally been oppressing you. And you knew that to be true. Why? Because there's an entire book in the Old Testament called the book of Judges. And is the book of Judges about judicial officers? No, they're people anointed by God to finally set God's people free from whatever's oppressing them. So when we say Jesus is your judge, that should give us hope and heart. Because what that means is, is one day you'll be fully exposed to the presence of the one anointed by God to finally and fully set you free from whatever's been oppressing you and making you less human. Because here's the problem with the first image. The first image is a court official. And then we say, come on, I want you to have a close relationship with Jesus. Ain't nobody want to be in court. Nobody want to be in court, even if you're innocent. You don't want to be in court. I'm very close with someone who was falsely accused of a crime. He did not do it. I knew he didn't do it. He knew he didn't do it. And I went to court with him. And most everybody knew he wouldn't do it. And let me just, I'll go ahead and set the uh, tension out. He was declared not guilty. He was acquitted. And it went further than that. The people who accused him of the crime was charged with perjury and fined for wasting the court's time. That's how far that went. But I can tell you right now, standing in the foyer waiting for the case to be called, nobody wanted to be in court. He didn't do it. I didn't do it. I knew he didn't do it. Everybody sort of knew he didn't do it. But when you're submitting, whether you did it or not, to some judge who has the power to destroy you, ain't nobody want to be in court. So when we say Jesus is the judge, now come on, get close to Jesus. You can understand why for some people they would be resistant to say yes, not to that word, but to the imagination of how that word worked. See, when the scripture says Jesus is the judge, it means one day you'll be fully in the presence of the one anointed by God to finally and fully set you free from whatever has oppressed you. Now, if I said, now get close to that, that's a better story. In other words, Jesus did not come to change God's mind about you. Jesus came to change your mind about God. And that is two different things. The gospel is not that God was grumpy and then he hurt somebody, namely his own kid, and now he's fundamentally less grumpy with you, that is not a good story. The good news is that God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself by choosing to submit himself to the broken story, even if the broken story killed him, in order to overcome the common enemy of the broken story, namely death. And that is better. So I want to paint maybe a better imagery for us. That the God revealed in Jesus and talked about in Romans, is a God that humbly consents first. What we find is, is that God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. That's the New Testament in one sentence. God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God was always like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. Particularly the book of Hebrews. That is the entire book in one sentence. It's like, oh my goodness, God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. But there were all these hints and metaphors around this. A God that acts first in love. Let me show you one that is not normally attached to a loving thing. This is the first line of the Ten Commandments. Now, once again, if I was to say, hey, we're at, we're, we're at a women's meeting, right? We're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. There's like, hey, if you want to kill a party, right? Let's, let's talk about the ten things we're not allowed to do. But I'll, I want to put some different imagery on it. This is uh, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, put that for, yeah, there you go. This is the first line of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I... I am the Lord, your God, 
And God spoke all these words. A couple of questions, because at Heritage in Bundaberg, you guys are fairly astute. You have a good Bible teacher as your senior pastor. I can always tell when I'm in a church that they have good teachers as their senior pastors because they take notes, okay? You guys are very sort of astute. You're not really into hype or anything like that. So let me just ask you a, a couple of questions. One, do you see the word command anywhere in there? And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. A couple of observations about this. First, I do not mind you calling it the Ten Commandments. I call it the Ten Commandments because that's how we were always taught to, to refer to it, and there's nothing really wrong with it. I would just like to make a point that the word command is not there. And in Jewish culture, they don't call it Ten Commandments. They call it a ten-word ketubah. Now, you might be thinking, a what? I'll get to that in a second. A ten-word ketubah. In other words, These are not conditions that we must do for God to love us. These are somehow 10 proofs God already does. In the 10 commandments or the 10 word ketubah, it doesn't start with, if you do this, then I will love you. It starts with an affirmation. Hey, by the way, before we get to what we're not gonna do, let me affirm that I am the Lord, your God. So the God revealed in Christ lovingly consents first and then humbly waits for our mutual consent and the God revealed at at Mount Sinai giving of the 10 commandments so the giving of the 10 words actually is the same God going, hang on, I will humbly consent to you first in love and then wait for your mutual consent. Now, in Jewish culture, the Ten Commandments is called a ten-word ketubah. It was a marriage proposal. And, and in fact, the entire book of Exodus is outlined around an ancient Hebrew wedding. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you the basic five-step process of a Hebrew wedding. And I want us to find ourselves in the story because when we open the Bible, we want to ask two questions. One, what happened? And two, more importantly, What's happening in us right now because of what happened? Next slide. So an an ancient Hebrew wedding was organized around these five words. And I'm going to teach you these because they're really fun and and they're they're neat to know. The five words, I'm going to say them and then we're going to repeat them, okay? The five words are are laka, segula, mikvah, ketubah, and hupa. Now, let's go through all five and let's learn them, all right? The first one is called Laka with some Go Bundaberg gusto. I want everybody to say that with me. Ready? Go. Laka. Very good. All right. The second one is called Segula with the same amount of gusto, maybe even a little more. Let's try that. Ready? Go. Segula. The third one is called Mikvah. Everybody together? Ready? Go. Mikvah. The fourth one is called Ketubah. Let's try that, everybody together. Ketubah. And the last one is called Chupah. Let's try that together. Ready? Go. Chupah. Or we could try it like, uh, what was the guy, uh, Speedy Gonzalez? Chupah, chupah, yiba, yiba. It's that. Chupah. Now, these are the five stages of a Hebrew relationship. Laka, Segula, Mikvah, Ketubah, and Hoopa, and hoopa is sort of what you're thinking. Now, let me walk through what each five are. And what I'm going to do is we're going we're gonna to make, make up a hypothetical girlfriend for me, okay? So let's pretend that I'm dating somebody. I'm going to make up a name, and there is no intention. There's no, if, there, if you're making a connection, it's not there, okay? So We'll make up somebody's name, and we'll call her name um, Marie, all right? So Marie is somebody that I 
and dating. Now, and if I'm going to do is I'm going to extrapolate how things work in our world and put it back in that world so that we can see the meaning of what's going on. If I was dating Marie, at some point we would start having chats around how serious we're going to be. Like essentially one of us or both of us would at some point be sitting at Guzmani Gomez and going, hey, listen, is this going anywhere? Like, okay, like we've been, we've been at this for two months, three months, five months, six months, eight months, wherever the comfort level is. And I'm, I'd like it to go somewhere, but if you're not going to take it anywhere else, we probably should sort of end this now. So I'm just, I'm just wanting to know um, how far are we, are we going to take our next step at any moment? And so we, at some point, mutually agree that, yes, we like each other. There's a certain level of chemistry. There's a certain level of attraction. We find each other easy to talk to. We find each other sort of low maintenance. You don't bring a certain amount of stress to my life. So there's, there's that sort of, all the things that we, that we should discuss, right? Like all the things you should consider before you take a relationship somewhere serious. And by the way, is someone a Christian is like number 40 on the list, okay? Like, are they possessive? Do they have integrity? Do, are they lazy? Are they good with money? Do they have good work ethic? These are all, these are, how do they act when they don't get their way? These are all questions I'd want to know before I get to the, are you a Christian question? The reason is, is you can go from not Christian to Christian in one second, but you can't go from jerk to not jerk in one second, right? So, so I, I want to know all these things. It's not that the, are they a Christian question is not important. It's just, there should be about, I don't know, 40 questions you should ask before you get to that point. And so at some point you go, well, all right, we're, this is going to go somewhere. Well, once this, once we've decided this is going to go somewhere in our hypothetical situation, Marie would be longing to hear me say the word laka. So one night we're out at the most expensive, nicest restaurant in Bundaberg, somewhere around Nando's. I don't know. Anyway, so, so we're somewhere, we're somewhere in this nice restaurant in Bundaberg. And I just know that tonight's the night. I can feel it. I just know this is where we got to do this thing. So I take her home. It's one of the best dates we've ever had. I take her home and I hold her by the hand and I say, Marie, before you go inside, Laka. Well, she would have a hard time containing herself, right? She would try to keep her hands off of me, but how could you? How can you resist all of this? She's trying to control herself, right? And so she does as she goes inside, but as soon as she goes inside, she goes nuts. She calls her three best friends. She's like, he said laka to me. He said laka to me. Oh, yeah! He said laka to me. Facebook status change. He said laka, right? Laka was an initiation of the marriage relationship. It literally means in Hebrew, will you be my own? Will you be mine? Will you, will you be exclusive to me? Now, there's this group of slaves. They've been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. A guy named Moses gets them out of slavery. Let me set this up in, here's the entire history of Israel in, I don't know, 30 seconds. A guy named Abraham had a son named Isaac, had a son named Jacob who had 12 children. Uh, those 12 children sold one of their brothers into slavery in Egypt only to later need him to save them from a famine that had hit where their family was living. They end up in Egypt to realize that the brother they sold was actually the guy in charge of the food. Instead of taking vengeance on them, he's nice to them and uh, he gives them a piece of land and then they start having babies and then lots of babies and babies and babies and babies and babies and babies and, babies and more babies and then there's lots and lots of babies and 
and babies. And this, Isra- this Israelite family actually overpopulated Egypt, so the Egyptian king panicked, and he put them into slavery for 430 years to hold them down from overrunning Egyptian prosperity. 430 years later, a guy named Moses comes along, and he gets them out of slavery into freedom, and they end up in the wilderness wondering, what is this God like? All they knew was this God was powerful. Well, knowing somebody's powerful without knowing what they're like is frankly terrifying, right? And this is the first encounter they have. Uh, Next slide. So laka means my own. And this is Exodus chapter six. Uh, I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Again, What's a judge? A court official? No. I'm anointed to set you free from the people who are oppressing you. And I will take you as my own. The word there is laka. Now, you didn't have to explain to ancient Jews that God is starting a proposal, a marriage proposal. Like this is the first that anybody knows of, of any God from any civilization, from anywhere in the world that wanted an intimate relationship. Every other God had their existent temples, their existent rituals, their existent offerings. And then maybe if you did something, they might act on your behalf by giving you food or shelter or, or, or save you in childbirth or whatever the promise was. But this God seems to be different. This God is using wedding talk. This God's saying, la ka. Well, again, the slaves would have been like, is he said laka to us? Is, is, he, is, is God wanting to actually get to know us? Now, if you go back to those five words, next slide. So the five words are laka, segula, mikvah, ketubah, and hupa. Let's go back to our hypothetical with Marie. Once I say laka to Marie, how long does that last? Not very long. Three weeks after that, her friends are like, has he said segula yet? Has he, hey, is, does he have a problem with commitment? What's his, what's his deal? And Marie's like defending me. Marie's like, shut up. He'll say Segula when he's ready, right? And they're like, nope. If he hasn't said Segula yet, there's something wrong with him. You, you guys know how this works, right? So, so it's like, it's just back and forth, back and forth. But deep in Marie's heart, she's wondering, I wonder if he's ever gonna say Segula. He's, who says Laka without eventually saying Segula? What kind of maniac does that? What kind of maniac leaves you hanging, right? But I haven't said Segula yet, right? Because I just haven't felt it. So one night we're, 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 at, we're on a date, right? And, and, and we go to the Indian place, right? And, and she orders spicy lamb vindaloo. And I'm like, my God, any woman that eats spicy vindaloo, that's the kind of woman I want to spend the rest of my life with, right? I'm like, this is amazing, right? So I take her back home and I'm like, I'm like listen, Marie, before you go inside, I got something to tell you. Brace yourself, ready? Segula. Well, she would have a hard time containing herself. She would try to keep her hands off of me, but who could do that? Look at her. How can you, how can you resist all this? She does her best. She goes inside. She calls her three best friends, and she like, he said Segula to me. He said Segula to me. Oh, yeah. He said Segula to me. Facebook status change. He said Segula. Now, Segula means treasured possession. I know. Oh, I know. Oh, that's so good, isn't it? Now, I want to be clear about this. In ancient Hebrew, that was a compliment. I know like modern women are like, what, you think you own me, right? But tri- like, like it's, think of it more like out of everything I own, you're the, you're the most important. It's not I own you. It's more, it's more I own a lot of stuff and you're more important than all that. It's, um, it's laka times two. Laka is my own. Segula means treasured possession or special treasure. Now, this group of slaves in Exodus chapter six, 
and I will take you as my own. Same group of people wondering what God is like. This is Exodus 19, same God speaking to the same people, and he uses a weird word. Here it is, next slide. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. The word is segula. Again, you didn't have to explain to ancient Jews, this is wedding talk. You didn't have to explain to them. They're going, wait a minute, does God want to marry us? Is this, what, is this actually happening? That he, he's, not, he's not demanding things from us. He is declaring and affirming in consent that he wants to be a part of our life. What kind of God does this? Now, back to the five words. Laka, segula, mikvah, ketubah, and hupah. If, if I'm with Marie and I've said laka and I've said segula, how long does that last? Not long. Three weeks later, her friends are like, has he said mikvah yet? Does he have a commitment problem? Is he, just, is he just dragging you along, right? And Marie defends me. She's like, shut up. He'll say mikvah when he's ready, right? But you know, and she knows, and deep in her heart, she's wondering, I wonder if he'll ever say mikvah. Now, mikvah was a three-day notice. It was a, um, I would say warning, but warning's negative. It was like, it was in three days, I'm going to ask you to marry me, right? See, today there's mystery around, is tonight the night he's going to ask, right? There's a bit of, it's less mystery now than 30 years ago, because when you show up and the photographer's already there, you start putting two and two together, right? And, and, and people are like, more and more, because of social media, they're trying to outdo each other on uh, proposals, right? I'm talking about people are spending down payments on houses, on the, like what? Are you anyway? So, so there, but there's a bit of mystery to it, right? There's a bit of I wonder if tonight's the night. Not in Jewish culture. Once you said laka and segula, at some point you're going to say mikvah. So I'm out with Marie, and we go to the Thai place, and she orders green curry, extra hot. And I'm like, you know what? Whoever eats extra hot green curry, I want to spend the rest of my life with a woman like that, right? So I take her back to her house, and I'm like, Marie, listen. Before you go in, I got something to tell you. Um, brace yourself. Um, <clears throat> mikvah. Well, mikvah is like, oh my goodness, in three days, he's going to ask me to marry. Now, I have talked, I have preached this at international women's conferences, national women's conferences. I did it 15 years ago for the ACC State Women's Conference, right? I've been in rooms of 3,000 women talking about this topic, right? And it's always the same. I explain laka, and the women go, oh, my own. I say segula, and it's even better. I'm like special treasure, right? And somebody over here was like, oh, Oh, that was so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Mikvah is far less romantic. Mikvah means go wash. Girl, you need a bath. Your breath is stinky, right? Mikvah, I'm joking. It's like, oh, oh. Mikvah was a three day notice to wash for three days. Here's the reason why. In three days, I'm going to ask you to marry me, and I want you to be ceremonially clean so that I can touch you. It's actually 
It's actually a good thing. You, you see this all over the scripture. Mikvah um, at its most elemental level or baptismal baths or ceremonial baths. Uh, you, you, you really see it with overkill in the book of Esther. It says, and she bathed for a year in perfume before she went into the presence to ask her husband for a favor, right? Which I think we could all agree, bathing for a year in perfume is like, girl, that's overkill, right? Like, like, what are you hiding? My goodness, there's a much easier way to get your way here. Bathing for a year in perfume is like, good Lord, girl. But so mikvah, mikvah was, I want you to wash and be ceremonially clean for three days because in three days, I'm gonna ask you to marry me. So, this group of slaves. Exodus chapter six, I will take you as laka. Exodus chapter 19, I, out of the whole earth, I own the whole earth, but you will be my segula. Five verses later, here's what he says. Next slide. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Mikvah. So this, this group of people journeyed through five stages, Laka, Segula, Mikvah, back to the five words. You have Laka, Segula, Mikvah. The next word is Ketubah. Now, please, I'm not tricking you. I'd never do that, all right? Exodus 19 verse 10 says, three days from now, I'm going to ask you to marry me. What happens three days after Exodus 19? Exodus 20. I know, I know. Wow, right? And Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Do you see why in Jewish culture they never think of it as Ten Commandments? They see it as a ten-word ketubah. Now, a ketubah is a marriage proposal, but it's bigger than that. Because for us, once again, words matter less than how we picture words functioning. If I say it's a marriage proposal, what does that mean? Will you marry me? right? It was much bigger than that. Ketubah was a marriage contract. It was an agreement for how our relationship is going to work. When I worked for years as a a marriage and sex counselor, um, one of my jobs at the big church I was on staff at was I was in charge of all the premarital counseling for the whole church. I was in charge of all the, I I was the church psychotherapist because that was my master's degree. So one of the things I used to do is I would make every couple considering marriage write a ketubah. And what I mean by that is, is we're going to talk, this is what good premarital counseling is. We're going to talk through what is acceptable and what is unacceptable while taking in all of your family background and all your biases. We're going to find out how we can, how we can establish behaviors that will uh, exaggerate shalom, exaggerate peace. And here's how a ketubah worked, okay? This is a caricature, but you'll get it. I would sit down with Marie. So me and Marie at a table. Behind me is my father. Behind her is her father. The fathers were there for two reasons, witness and wisdom. Because how many of you know, once you're older, you realize that some of the expectations around marriage from young people is unreasonable, right? And that just, it's, they're not bad or they're not really dumb. It's just, there's a difference between being not intellectual and not wise, right? So it's a difference between being not smart and not wise. Wisdom only comes from experience. So the fathers would be like, I know you think that's going to be the case, but you're going to find that's actually, that's, that's not going to be, there's not, that, that's not going to happen that often. You're not going to get through this without that. So it was for witness and wisdom. And here was the basic rule. I could put anything in the ketubah I wanted, and she could put anything in the ketubah she wanted, 
so long as we both agreed. Because how can two walk together, lest they be agreed? And so what I would do is we would then develop this ketubah, basically how we're going to treat one another. What's on limits? What's off limits? What, you know, what kind of things are we agreeing to do? Once we agreed to the ketubah, I would stand and I would hold her by the hand and I would say, will you marry me? In other words, based on what we just, based on the agreement we just made, will you marry me? Some of the worst teaching you'll ever hear about marriage sounds something like this. Once you make a covenant, you just have to put up with whatever they do, even if they're destroying your life. Doesn't matter. You made a covenant. You just let them destroy your life. That is actually the opposite of what a ketubah was. The ketubah was, hey, this is something that we can mutually hold each other accountable to with the help of witness and wisdom, right? And I would say, hey, based on this, will you marry me? And of course, by that point, you're not going through all of that and going, mm, I don't know. It, you go, yes. Now, as soon as she said yes, this is what I would say, pay very close attention to the language and tell me where you've heard it before. Great. Then I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And then she would say, great. When are you gonna come back to receive me unto yourself? And I would say, I do not know the day or the hour, but when my father approves the wedding chamber I'm gonna build for you, he'll send me back to receive you unto myself, but be watchful and ready for my return. Have you ever heard that before? From Jesus, right? Again, the God revealed in Christ, the God revealed in Exodus 20 is using wedding talk, consenting first and waiting humbly for our mutual consent. So here's what would happen. I would then go and prepare the place. Again, don't think too highly of this. Essentially, um, ancient houses were family compounds, right? The family business was on the street and then everybody lived in the same place, just in different bedrooms. And the older you got, the closer to the front of the house you lived. And then when you died, you were moved out of the house, and then people moved up. So the closer you got to the front of the house, the closer you were to death. So that's, that's the way we were. And so the, the younger, newer married couples would live in, it would live, and, and if there was not a room, then they would have to build a new room onto the existing thing so that there would be room for this new married couple. So I would go make the make the, uh, the, the marriage room for, you know, for me and my wife. And then I would come back to get Marie. When I would come back to get Marie, we would then have a wedding. At the wedding is where the hoopah, now what I'm doing is I'm doing ketubah and hoopah together and then I'll show it to you. So a hoopah was a marriage altar. Um, um, today, they can be quite elaborate. If you ever saw the movie um, Meet the Parents, uh, Owen Wilson's character makes this $50,000 uh, hoopah. Um, sometimes in most weddings, they're just simply a lattice of archway that you stand um, underneath. In the ancient world, it wasn't even that elaborate. It was basically a prayer shawl, a tallit, with four sticks in the ground, and they would tie the tassels of the prayer shawl to the four sticks, and it would cover you under the presence of God. Hoopah means to be covered in God's presence, right? And at a wedding, there were two hoopahs, one at the actual wedding and then one in the marriage room over the bed. So what they would do is over the marriage bed, they would put four sticks around the four corners of the bed. They would tie a hoopah or a 
prayer shawl to the top of it so that when the marriage was consummated, it was done so under the presence of God by the witness of God, right? So the idea was, is you would come to this marriage altar and there was all these cool things. Like there was a, something called a salt ceremony where essentially I'll oversimplify it. I had a bag of salt. She has a bag of salt. The priest has an empty bag. And then they would take my bag of salt, put it in the bag, her bag of salt, put it in the bag. And then the priest would shake it. And he would say, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder, right? And then they would sprinkle the mixed salt over our hands. Well, once the marriage was, the wedding was done, the only thing left to do is to consummate the marriage. So here's what would happen. Tell me where you've seen this before, right? So you go, I would take Marie to the door of the wedding chamber. And in those, back then, I would pick her up, right? So I I can't think of, what, what do you call that in Australia where you carry them? You carry them under the threshold, right? I guess it's a thing. Is that still a thing? I'd recommend it for some. Others, I wouldn't, right? It'd be like, it'd be like, girl, I'll give you a piggyback. Jump on. I don't know what, right? right? I don't know. Some people can do it, right? So I would, I, would, I would pick her up, and then I would carry her into the wedding chamber. They would shut the door behind me, and then we would consummate the marriage under the chuppah, under the present. It's not... Sex is not a great spectator sport, so they let God witness the consummation of the marriage. But here's where, here's where Western people freak out, right? So, so Hebrew, ancient Hebrew people, they would just carry her under the threshold. They'd shut the door, and then everybody just waited. They were much less embarrassed by their sexuality than we are. That's one. But two, they got married at 13, right? So, you, so you'd go in and, 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 you'd, and they'd shut the door and then they just waited, right? And so these are two 13-year-olds. So like 15 seconds later, here they come. They're, they're, they're good to go, right? And then you had, you had this hoopah sort of experience. Now, this group of slaves. This group, are we having fun? We're having fun, right? <laughs> This group of slaves has heard God say Laka, then Segula, then Mikvah, then three days later, they hear what they were all expecting three days later, Ketubah. Next slide. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. This is how the Ketubah started. It's odd because in that sentence, I am the Lord your God, there's only three words. That's the verse we looked at at the beginning if you forgot 30 minutes ago. This is Anoki Jehovah Elohim. Odd. If you know anything about Hebrew, you know you can say, I am the Lord your God with two words, Jehovah Elohim. But there's a weird word, Anoki. Now, the first word of the Ten Commandments is a word that actually doesn't belong Now, this should scream at us. Pay attention, pay attention. Hey, the first word of God's marriage proposal is a word that you could, it doesn't matter. Like, that's weird. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to understand that ancient Hebrew were pictures. They grew up in Egypt. So every Hebrew letter is a picture. Every Hebrew word is a comic strip. It tells a story. Now, the A in the the word anarchy is a ox head going into a yoke. The N is fish multiplying. It's one becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, and so forth. The CH is a hedge or a fence. And the Y is an upraised hand. It means to surrender, consent, or praise. So you have an ox head going into a yoke, authority. You have 
fish multiplying, you have a hedge or a fence, and then you have a, a, a surrender or consent or, or, or praise. So when an ancient Hebrew person read this, let me see if I put that on slides. Next slide. Yeah, Anoki, yeah, so the A-N-O-C-H-Y, the O's not there, it's just there for pronunciation. Next slide. It, it, it would say this, your authority is multiplying inside the hedge of praise and submission. So the first word of God's commitment to these people is he initiated a promise, I am here to make you bigger. I'm here to save the day. I'm here to teach you how to be human. Hey, what we're fixing to talk about, if you surrender and consent to this, it'll do nothing but make your life better. And if you read the Ten Commandments, not as conditions for God to love us, but proof that he already does. As a marriage proposal, it makes infinite more sense. Here we go, ready? Don't have any other gods before me. In other words, if we're gonna be married, I'd like to be the only one, if, if that's all right, right? Oh, don't have idols. In other words, if we're gonna be married, could you put the pictures of your old boyfriends away, right? Sort of hurts my feelings, right? Hey, um, let's have one day in seven and just make it between us. Let's make that a day of rest between us. Who is he talking to? Slaves. When was their last day off? Never. No slave listening to that is going, oh no, it's the law. It's like, hang on, did he just mandate a day off a week? We haven't had a day off in our life. And we get a day off every week. Hey, don't use my name in vain. And by the way, that's not a language issue. That's not like saying, oh my God, although it's probably distasteful and we probably shouldn't do it, but it has nothing to do with taking God's name in vain. The word is nasa, which is don't carry it in vain. In other words, it literally don't carry God's name in a way that disappoints the hope that rests upon it. In, in other words, if we're gonna be married, you're gonna have power of attorney on my name. Don't use my name for something I wouldn't use it for. In other words, don't sign checks I wouldn't sign, right? In other words, don't say God said when it's just your stupid idea. So you've come up with something and no one's buying it, so you go, God told me. Well, don't, don't say God said when it's a really bad idea that you're using to justify horrendous behavior that is hurting people. Don't do that. That's using God's name. And don't, don't put the fish on your car and then point your middle finger at someone who cut you off in traffic. Don't, don't do that. Don't, um, don't wear the cross around your neck and then, and, and then call the waitress an idiot for taking too long to take your order. Everybody picking that up? All right, so, so you got that. Oh, oh, hey, here's a good idea. Don't kill each other. That's a good one. Hey, don't, hey, you, you realize, put yourself in the slave's predicament. Wait a minute, in our new world, the strongest people can't kill the weakest people just because they're strong? Nope, not in our new world. No way. Here's another one. Don't take each other's things. What? In our new world, the biggest, strongest people can't take our stuff? Nope. In Egypt, they could take anything they wanted, I know. And they could kill you if they wanted, I know. Hey, here's another one. Don't sleep with each other's spouses. It's a bad plan. Communities crumble when that happens, right? You imagine being a slave. Wait a minute, hang on. I just want to make sure. The biggest, strongest people in our new world can't sleep with our wives without us having any say-so. No. They, we've never known a world like that. The Egyptian slave masters raped our women all the time. I know. But in our new world, your life, your wife, and your stuff is protected. This would have been the greatest thing ever. It's like the slaves would be like, this is unbelievable. Laka, Segula, Mikvah, Ketubah, and Chupa. Next slide. <clears throat> this is the verse after the Ten Commandments. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning, and they heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled in fear. That sentence almost makes no sense. 
The people saw thunder. How do you see thunder? And it's not like he didn't know how to use the word heard. That, that sentence, if it makes sense, should say, and the people heard thunder and saw lightning and heard trumpets and saw mountains and smoke. That would make more sense. Or a better sentence in English would be, when the people saw the lightning and the mountain and the smoke, they also heard the thunder and the trumpet. That, that makes more sense, but it's not what it says. It says they saw the thunder. Now, if you just go look that up in Hebrew, the word is kole, which everywhere else is voices. It's the same word Moses used. I saw the voice out of the fire of the burning bush. Same words. So what it says is, the people saw the voices inside fire and the whole presence of God covers them in smoke. What is that? Chupa. Uh, uh, What would the voices have been saying? Will you marry me? The, the, The Talmud says that on this day, In Jewish history, God proposed to all of creation with 70,000 tongues of fire from the sky. Actually, in 1857 in Rangoon, Burma, an English sociologist went and studied the Karen people. And he said to the Karen people, who is your God? 1857. And the Karen people said, we serve a God named Yava who proposed to us thousands of years ago with languages of fire from the sky. And God was reaching out to everybody. So what happens in this story is the people are covered in the presence of God and languages of fire sit over their head. What's this called? This is called their wedding day. Now, if you're married, what do you do every year on your wedding day to celebrate it? It's called your anniversary. If you don't do that, you probably should. It's it's one day a year where you sort of remember when you did like each other. I think it's that. So, So God says, God says, here's what I want you to do. Every year on this day, I want you to celebrate your anniversary. You can read about it in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23. And the the yearly celebration of their anniversary was called Pentecost. Pentecost was the day this happened. And what they would do at Pentecost, it was such a beautiful ceremony, is they would take leavened bread, not unleavened. It had to be leavened. And they would saturate it with oil. And the, the idea was is that God's presence wants to be in flawed people. See, people might say, hey, you got to get the leaven out of your life for God to be want to be a part of your life. That is not true. And you should get the leaven out of your life because it's your best life. But it's not that God is too holy. God's so holy, he won't engage your broken story. It's actually God's so holy, he can't help himself but engaging your broken story in order to make a better narrative. And and so the, the Pentecost feast was all about celebrating God wants to be with people who are flawed. And, and so they would take the leaven loaves and they would say the day of Pentecost has fully come. Well, fast forward, Acts chapter two. What happens? It says they're all together on Pentecost. Why are they all together? Because it's Pentecost. And it's the yearly celebration to remember the day God wanted to be married to them. And it says that they were in an upper room and it says the entire presence of God covered them in smoke and they heard the sound of a trumpet and they saw languages inside fire sitting over their head. Does that sound familiar? In other words, the same exact thing is happening on the same exact day just years later. The only difference is this time they spoke back, which is the birth of the church, which is the bride of Christ. So bless you, my sisters. If you've been resistant to saying yes to a relationship with God or going further with your relationship with God because you were scared of standing in front of a heavenly courtroom figure who's gonna declare you guilty or not. I would say that the good news is better than that. 
that the God revealed in creation, the God revealed at Sinai, the God revealed in Christ are all the same God. And what they do is they consent in love and humbly wait for your consent to engage your broken story, not to judge it, not to condemn it, not to criticize it, not to banish it, but to engage it in order to make a better story. And the whole point of Pentecost is God wants to be with you, leaven and all, issues and all, flaws and all. And that demands a response. How did the people in Acts chapter two respond? They went away from that experience, they sold everything they could, and they ministered to the poor. Why would they do that? Well, next slide. Leviticus 23. On that same day, Pentecost, you're to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. And when you reap the harvest of your field, don't, don't reap to the very edges of it or gather the gleaning of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner for I am the Lord your God. In other words, the only response to Pentecost is to be generous to people who don't have. Why? Because Pentecost is a day where we celebrate that God treated us not as we deserve, but as we're worth. And we are supposed to be so motivated by that that we can't help but minister to the marginalized and poor in our community, in our world, with no consideration of what they can do in return, because that's what Pentecostals do. I want Heritage Christian Church, I want it to be the most Pentecostal church in Bundaberg. And by that, I don't mean the weirdest. By that, I don't mean the most tongue-talking, although I am for spiritual language used in mighty amounts. But if Pentecostals are only known for their ability to exercise spiritual language, it sort of misses half of the point, which is we are supposed to be so moved by God's gracious gift to us that we can't help but for the action to be out there. So my sisters, if you've been resistant to saying your next yes with Jesus, I would ask you to consider a different image. Judge in the sense of defender, someone anointed by God to set you free, and a God who wants to have intimate relationship with you, issues in all, leaven in all, and doesn't put conditions on the consent. The only thing is, do you want it? And if you want it and you mutually consent, he gets in the middle of the broken story and makes a better narrative. May that be one of the primary images we have. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection central and scriptures got bigger, not smaller for you. I hope you had some fun. I hope it was interesting, entertaining, moving, and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you feel like, boy, that went a bit long, it did go a bit long, but that's because the people over here were antagonizing me with my storytelling. They kept, they were antagonizing me. I did go four minutes over my time. I hope that was okay. If not, peace between us is the most important thing. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.